Father, on a morning where your word teaches us something that is not difficult to understand, but for those of us living when we do, where we do, it is difficult to accept. Would you open our hearts? Would you give us clear minds? Would you open our ears to receive the implanted word? Would we see the goodness of your design for us? And see our value not in what we do, but in who we reflect. Do this through your mighty word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm told that we have a birthday of sorts as a congregation, that two years ago the incubator started for College Park Castleton. We've come a long way since that day two years ago. As far as I know, this will be the first in our two-year history. Uh, We're about to start a topical sermon series for the next three weeks uh, on the topic of the image of God. I've entitled that series, uh, Beautiful Design. The aim is for us to see we are God's beautifully designed creatures made to reflect his glory. That we are God's beautifully designed creatures made to reflect his glory. Now, uh, if you ask what's the normal warp and woof, what what do you get a regular Sunday here at College Park Castleton? It would be what we call exposition. That would be, I'd just take a passage from the Bible and we would just walk our way through it verse by verse. Now, uh, that's, I think, the healthiest way for the diet of a congregation, and we will do that uh, the vast majority of Sundays. But every once in a while, there are things that require us to draw from the whole teaching of all of the Bible, to be able to cover something that one passage doesn't itself cover, like uh, the subject matter for the next three weeks. And so on Sundays like that, we will do uh, topical preaching, not as a, a rule, but every once in a while as an exception. And I hope you'll find this helpful. Uh, If you're not used to listening to topical sermons, let me give you a couple guidelines that might be helpful. Um, Instead of having one verse that I'm, one passage I'm going to be in, I'm going to draw out of. I'm going to be going to multiple different passages. So write down the various passages that I am referencing along the way. And when you get home, double check to see if I'm actually telling you the truth. As a pastor once I heard once heard say, uh, you can't afford to take my word for it. Um, So you want to make sure that you have the time to study those passages on your own. Hopefully I am doing them justice as we move through them. The second thing to realize that the topics we'll be dealing with are far too large to do in one Sunday, much less three Sundays. So these will not be exhaustive, and yet hopefully they will be helpful and get us to where we need to be as a congregation. Now these three weeks we are going to focus on this idea of the image of God and applications of it on us as creatures and people that live in this world. There's a man named Carl Sagan said these words. He said, every one of us in the cosmic perspective is precious. You may know Carl Sagan if you were born before I was, as a guy on the PBS special Cosmos. In that quote of his, he shows that he knows deep down what we all know, that there is something valuable, precious, about humans. Now, how does Carl Sagan, a atheist, naturalist, materialist, someone who doesn't believe in God, how does he arrive at the conclusion that humans are valuable? Well, if you continue the quote, this is how he grounds it. He says, if a human disagrees with you, let him be. In a hundred billion galaxies, you will not find another like him. For Carl Sagan, for humanity to be valuable, 
he roots it in uniqueness. There's no one like you on this earth, and there will be no one like you found on any planet in the cosmos. Therefore, according to Carl Sagan, you are valuable. Well, I'll just say that if that were the case, then snowflakes would be worth saving. Um, They're unique as far as I can tell. Being unique is not enough to say that we are valuable. So what's the alternative? Well, another alternative comes from a well-known writer, Margaret Sanger. Her alternative is to say that humanity has no intrinsic worth. She's known for her contribution to the eugenics movement, which saw certain people in society as undesirable, people to be weeded out using the tools of government like birth control, forced sterilization, people that had mental disabilities or of certain socioeconomic backgrounds or even certain races. After, in the one particular uh, paper she wrote, after outlining how these policies could be put into place, at the very end, this was her punchline. She said, why allow license to the feeble-minded and unfit types and make freedom impossible for the normal? It's a scary place when you say humanity has no intrinsic value. You find yourself justifying some pretty dark stuff. But where can we find value for the human race? Maybe ask it this way. Why are we valuable according to the Bible? Well, the answer is not because of what we do. The answer is because of who made us and whose image we reflect. Genesis 21 uh, is laying out how God created the world. At this point in the narrative, he has spun up the universe and got the world in motion He's created the land and the animals on it day after day, declaring it is good. And yet there is something missing. In verse 26, God sets his intention on one last creature that will be unique over all of his creation, the creature of mankind, humanity. God said that let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And he sets out to do just that. And then in verse 27, we have a little bit of poetry. Uh, Some people disagree how to understand chapters 1 through 3 of Genesis, whether it's poetic in nature. But no one disagrees that verse 27 is poetic. It's classic Semitic poetry. It has one thought that it extends line by line using parallelism, each time adding a little more to it. We'll consider each line in turn. First, verse 27, first line. So God created man in his own image. This brings us to the first foundational truth. We need to understand, in order to understand why we have value as humans, our identity is found in who made us. Our identity is found in who made us. In that one line of poetry, an entire worldview comes into existence. A distinction between a creator And those he created is brought into being. And that distinction shows us who sets the terms. God made us. None of us are accidents. We weren't just atoms bouncing until one day we bounced a funny way and here we are. Now there's an intentionality to God creating humanity. This also shows that we are not self-existent. We did, we did not bring ourselves into being. We are not the source of life that we enjoy. 
No, we are creatures made by a creator. And if God made you, that means God rules over you. We do not get the freedom to choose who we are as defined by the God who made us. Now we have a lot more that can be teased out from that, but we need to move on to our second important bedrock truth to get this Christian worldview up on solid ground. See that the second line of poetry there? Our value is found in whom we reflect. Our value is found in whom we reflect. This time the focus is on the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. Now the phrase there, image of God, is hotly debated. Appealing to the Hebrew doesn't help. It just tells us of some sort of image or uh, something fashioned to reflect the one who made it. You can think of an image in a mirror. Theologians have been debating what it means back for millennia or centuries now. Um, so let me just go ahead and give the final word on it for everybody. <laughs> Some have thought that maybe the image of God is referring to man's ability to have rationality and intellect. A unique among humans is the ability to think at a certain level abstractly, to have certain types of thoughts. Now, the problem with that is that if you tie the image of God directly to intelligence, then some of us with greater intelligence than others are more in the image of God than others. So I don't think that suffices. Others have tied it to our moral responsibility. The fact that God can tell us to do certain things and we seem to have some manner of free agency to carry out either obedience or disobedience. Others have tied it to our capacity to create. We too can be artists like the art, great artist God himself. Others have tied it to dominion, the call for us to be sovereign over the earth, to subdue it. While all of those are interesting to ponder, I think they all fall short of capturing what it is that's unique about humans among all of God's creation. So I submit to you that there is, has to be something else tied up with the image of God. And I, I am persuaded that it is our ability to live spiritually. That human beings, different from all the other creatures, are given a soul by God. That soul allows them to commune with God, to live on beyond their bodies, and yes, to encompass all these other features we've mentioned into a unified person. Now, I might be wrong about that. If so, God will straighten me out one day, don't you worry. What is absolutely clear, though, is that the image of God is unique to humanity, and the image of God becomes the basis for morality and our responsibility before God. Let me just give you two passages that walk this out from Genesis to show you this. Genesis 9, 6. Here we, we read, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. See, the image of God is the basis for what we would say is the death penalty, capital punishment. To destroy God's image means you are liable to having your image of God destroyed. James 3, 9, this time applying to what we say, talking about our mouth. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
moral implications for what you say to one another because the person you are talking to is an image bearer as much as you are. The Bible teases this out again and again that the image of God brings with it unique responsibilities because it gives us intrinsic value as humans. That idea of intrinsic value is really important. It means our value does not come from what we do. Our value comes from what we've been given. The fact that we actually reflect the God who made us. Now, their applications for this are numerous. We are going to focus on three over the next uh, two Sundays and today. The remainder of this sermon will be focused on this applying to being made in the image of God as male and female to gender. We'll focus next week on how it relates to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And then finally, the week after, we'll see how it relates to the sanctity and worth of human life. If you're wondering just how widely this could be applied, let me just give you a a short list of applications of the image of God for how we think and live in this world. The idea of just war theory, that even nations do not have the freedom to take life without just cause, that only makes sense if you have the image of God for humanity. Due process rights, that even your government does not have the right to treat you in certain ways, Those are built on the image of God. Capital punishment, we already saw from Genesis 9, is built on the image of God. The way we care for creation and the environmentalism, ecology, that distinction between man and the rest of creation is built on the image of God. If our value is not in what we do, but who we're made after, then our work, our vocation, the things we, we do for a living... Those are implications of the image of God within us. The image of God is the foundation for our philosophy of art. If we are creative beings, it's because we reflect the creative God. It is the foundation for our philosophy of science. If we can know ordered systems and and beauty in nature, it's because there is a God that created systems to be found and gave us minds to comprehend it. Another application is racism, and ethnic harmony. If we are made in the image of God, our value does not come from our ethnicity or where we were born. If you're interested in that particular topic, uh, North Indy did uh, a conference on it last week, and the next three weeks their sermon series will be on the same topic. I highly recommend all those to you. Well, we don't have time to go through nearly the full exhaustive list of all the applications of the image of God, but we are going to focus this morning on one very important one, the image of God, how it relates to us being made male and female. That brings us to our third important truth this morning. Our role is found in line with our complementary design. Our role is found in line with our complementary design. This brings us to the Third and final line of poetry in verse 27. Male and female, he created them. Now this is not a difficult truth to understand. It's a difficult truth to accept in this day and age. I uh, sat down with my daughter at McDonald's yesterday and I asked her a catechism question. If you're not familiar with a catechism, it's just a systematized way of teaching truth. 
Uh, so this particular catechism comes from Tim Keller and the guys in the, the, at uh, his church in New York City called the New City Catechism. And so you ask a question, and then they, they memorize a response. In this case, the response was a song that she knew. So I said, uh, Lillian, how and why did God create us? And in a sing-song voice reflecting the song that she learned it from, she said, God created us, male and female, in his own image, his own image, to glorify him. Now, that's not a hard thing to wrap your head around, but it is a hard thing to accept in the day when we live. Now, Genesis 2 will tease out what it means to be made male and female. We don't have time to look at it now, but there's an order. Males made first, female after. There's certain ways that God describes men and women that are different. That gets teased out throughout the rest of the Bible. God says things to women that he does not say to men. God meets women in the midst of barrenness and does miracles of child uh, providing children. He speaks to women specifically about how they are to interact with their husbands. He speaks to men specifically in ways he does not speak to women. He holds men accountable for the way that they treat women. He gives them instructions for how they are to lead and protect. One passage would be enough to establish this. If you have your Bible, slip open with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, we'll start in verse 22. This is a section where Paul is speaking to all manner of different groups within a church. And he singles out two groups that are separated by gender. In verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. A word specifically to a subset of women, you are to submit to your husband, a command never given to a husband. Your husband is not to submit to his wife. Now there's a lot to be said about what that actually means. For now, let me just limit my comments to say this. Women, this is not a blanket statement to say you are to submit to all men. It is a subset of women in a congregation that are married and how they are to relate to their husbands. It is to be as Christ uh, has submission from the church, so they are to submit to their husbands. Then he has a word for husbands in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, the, it is an instruction given to one subset of the church, separated by gender, husbands, that's not given the opposite way to wives. Now, there are multiple ways we could go through the Bible and tease out distinctions like this. But for now, it's important to realize, back in Genesis 1, after God created the distinction between male and female, in verse 31, as he's done after every other step of creation, God said, it was good. And that leads to a really important principle that we have got to get a hold of, to think about this issue rightly. That God created us as male and female with distinct roles for our good. Now, 
in the day and age we live in, there is lots of cultural opposition to this idea. A couple decades ago, the flavor of the month was egalitarianism along the lines of feminism. The idea is that your worth is tied to your function. That for someone to be equal, they must be able to do the same things. And if you are prevented from doing certain things, well, you are not equal with someone who can do those same things. Your value is equal to your role under this system. It's led to a whole cultural push to uh, allow women into roles that formerly had been restricted to men. Now, there are some good things that egalitarianism has taught us along the way. We've certainly learned that women are very capable of certain roles in society that previously were, were culturally not expected, that we could see that women can, uh, can uh, <clears throat> benefit greatly from education, that we as society can benefit greatly from their using of that education and gifts in, the proper, way, in proper ways. And yet let's recognize that the Bible does not allow us to get on board with that basic presupposition that value equals equality in role. The Bible is happy to talk about differences in role without speaking of differences in value. Uh, just think, for example, of how God saved us. The, the father sends the son. The son dies on the cross. The father doesn't die on the cross. The spirit, he applies the work of the son on the cross to our hearts. The son doesn't do that himself. And yet for the differences, even in how God operates in saving us, we would never say that the members of the Godhead are not equal. So value cannot equal role according to the Bible. There, there must be an ability for us to say there can be differences in roles without there being a difference in value. Uh, the second line of cultural attack comes from the line of transgenderism. Uh, this time we don't say that role equals value. This time it's self-expression equals value. Transgenderism denies that gender is fixed, that it is God-given. It says that gender is a societal construct that you can choose to change. So if you feel as if you are a different gender tomorrow than you are today, then your expression of yourself as that gender is the highest good. That is your greatest value. Now, both of these uh, two different ways of looking at gender are visible uh, in the news this last week even. There was a, uh, <clears throat> a boy in Colorado that refused to wrestle a, uh, excuse me, refused to wrestle a girl as a part of uh, a wrestling tournament. Um, the, the idea was that it was not fair to keep her from being a part of this wrestling tournament, and his under conviction he could not do so. He said he could not do that sort of activity with a female in good conscience, and so he forfeited the tournament. Same time, we have uh, the push to allow people to change their gender even to the point where they can switch which gender of sport they go into. So we have uh, 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 three, three, the last three champions in a different state uh, in wrestling are former boys that declared themselves to be girls and then went on to dominate the competition. Now the Bible won't let us do either of these two things. The Bible says the distinction between male and female is given to us by God for our good. That equality of role does not 
mean equality of value. That our value comes from somewhere else entirely. And the Bible definitely doesn't teach that self-expression, it leads to our value. No, the Bible tells us that God defines who we are. We don't define that for ourselves. Now, let's realize that there is some real abuse when it comes to how gender has been applied, both within and outside the church. The Me Too movement has shown us how men have very often used their power and positions of authority in an abusive way towards women. That's evil. We must decry it. We must not allow that to be put forward as what God intends for us. We've also seen the chaos that ensues when this distinction between genders is erased. The Bible won't let us do that either. So how is it that we as Christians can think the way the Bible does, and how does that play out in arenas of life? Well, allow me to put in, my, put in place two distinctions and then some areas where it will tease out. Uh, we already touched on the first one, the, the difference between worth and role. The, there's another distinction. It's a difference between different spheres in relationship. It is not the same thing to apply complementarianism in the family as it is in the church, as it is in the workplace. Your relationships require different expressions of the same principle. So in the, the family, for instance, the husband and wife have differing roles in some places in their marriage that's obvious based on biology. Uh, men, as much as you may want to be uh, involved in the process, you will never carry children. You just can't do it, right? It's biologically not possible. Uh, ladies, as much as you might like for your husband to be able to participate in that particular uh, activity, that, that's not possible either, is it? Within the family, there are certain things that Scripture makes clear husbands are to do. They are to lead, to protect, to shepherd, to sacrificially love. They're not called to do those things equally to women outside of their families. They may in some sense be called to lead other women. Maybe at work they have a subordinate that's a woman or maybe at church they have leading a team that has a woman on it. And yet it would be wholly inappropriate for a husband to expect someone other than his wife to follow his lead the same way he would his wife within his family. Same way wives, you're called to submit and support your husband to nurture. You're not called to do that with every man. It would be totally inappropriate for you to try and live those complementary principles out with every single man you come across. <clears throat> now, how does this play out in the church? I think this is where it's most important for us this morning. If you have your Bible, go to Philippian, I'm sorry, uh, uh, 1 Timothy 3. <clears throat> the place where it's seen most clearly <clears throat> is in the role of elder. The role of elder is one that is restricted to men. And if we understand why, we'll be able to see why, uh, where the lines are drawn as a church and why. So uh, 1, Timothy, <clears throat> 1 Timothy 3, uh, verses 4 and 5. Speaking of the elder, <clears throat> he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. <clears throat> so for if someone does not know how to manage his own household how will he care for God's church? 
In this ver- these verses, the elder is shown to have overlap with the way that he treats his family and leads it and the way he will lead the church. We have to acknowledge there's some overlap between God's intention for male and female in the family and his intention for how that's expressed in the church. And yet, we have to acknowledge that that is not the case across the board. The rest of that list, verses 1 through 7, teases out what the elder is called to. And if you read through that list later today, you'll notice the elder is essentially called to be a mature Christian, to have categories that any Christian should have. He's called to be humble. He's called to be hospitable, gentle, to be one who is trustworthy. Those things are as applicable to women as they are to men. As you go through the list, you'll find that there are two things that are an exception. Two things the elder must be able to do that are not expected of every other Christian. They are, he must be able to teach, and he must be able to govern or lead. It's very helpful for us to understand that the two things the elder is called to do are the two things that scripture goes out of its way to forbid women from doing in the context of a church. We don't have time to look at 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. But there in a couple other places, it's made clear that the teaching within the church is the responsibility of men, not of women. Now, this is not because women are incapable of teaching or are somehow less intelligent. I've uh, met many women that know their Bibles better than I likely ever will in my life. Um, I had the privilege of sitting down with one woman who had a Ph.D., and had been teaching the Bible for more decades than I'd been alive. There's much that women can contribute to teaching of the Bible. And yet the office of elder and the teaching that comes with it is clearly restricted to men. Balancing that is the need for us to have the full expression of the gifts within the body being used within it. If we had time, I would take you to 1 Corinthians 12. and We tease out the need for the one body to have all of its parts working for the good of that body. The Holy Spirit is the same spirit within our sisters in Christ. That same spirit gives them gifts, and we need those gifts for our church to flourish. So how do you put that all together? Well, <clears throat> the principle is this. The, the office of elder and activities tightly bound to that office will be something that we restrict to men in our church. Some examples of that, what I'm doing right now, preaching on a Sunday morning, as clearly an office of elder type uh, uh, role. We will always have men preaching in College Park Castle on a Sunday morning. When it comes to leadership, Members of our elder board, those who would make certain decisions at the uh, level before it's brought to the congregation, those would be restricted to men. That doesn't mean women aren't able to do those things as if they are not capable of them. But it does mean that God has clearly made roles for our good and that those roles in some way reflect something of his character. Now, I want to pause here and just say that there are applications of complementarianism in the life of the church, that as I study it, 
do not seem to be clearly drawn from the Bible. Again, the, the closer you get to this office of elder, the more clear it is that that's re be restricted to men. But, but let me give you five examples that I've seen over my years in the church that I want to question, should that really be a male-only function within the church? Giving an announcement on a Sunday morning. As far as I know, that is not teaching. As far as I know, there's nothing in the Bible that says a woman could not give an announcement in a local church. Passing an offering plate. I'm so thankful for those who serve as ushers and pass the, the plates to receive our offerings, and yet <clears throat> they are not elders who do that. It seems to me that women are perfectly capable of and might even be... <clears throat> It might even be a great help to us to allow them to pass offering plates. Passing a communion plate. Now I agree that the actual administering of the Lord's table, that is clearly a pastoral elder type function, but passing the plates? I was in a church where only men could pass the plates, and the assumption was that those men were elders because all of them passed the plates, and this complementarian principle had been conflated with passing the plate. Fourth, leading a volunteer team. I don't think it's the same thing to lead a, a team as it is to lead the church. There are women already that are showing great ability to uh, organize and direct, and we'd be greatly hindering ourselves not to allow them to do that within the life of our church. Fifth, leading a song in musical worship. Now, I agree that there are parts of musical worship that absolutely are teaching. The transitions between songs feel as if they are instructing the congregation, because I think they are. <clears throat> I think most churches try to have a worship pastor for that very reason, and yet recognize the lead voice in a particular song does not imply an authority or a teaching position. Trust me, there are women that are much more suited for that than me. Being a man does not mean that you are uniquely able to lead in musical worship. Now, I, I want our, us to understand that we should be slow to restrict roles within our church where Scripture does not expressly do so. Now, we, at the same time, need to keep the distinctions that God has given us of male and female present within our body because they were given to us for our good. If you're here this morning and a part of our church as a woman, I want you to hear that your ministry here is needed and vital. There are situations you can step into, gifts that you have, that our church will suffer if we do not have you exercise your gifts in that area. But because we believe that, our staff is constructed the way it is. 40% of our staff here at College Park Castleton are women. Sherry and Brianna and soon-to-be Christy are doing real ministry, and we really benefit from what they do here as part of our body. <clears throat> I can't personally speak from experience, but I hear from Precious how, how wonderful our women's Bible study teachers are. Having well-trained, equipped, and empowered women to teach the Bible well is an incredible blessing to a church. I'm thankful for so many godly women, some that are leading volunteer teams, so many of you that serve behind the scenes that don't have a lot of uh, visibility. Our church is better for your ministry, so thank you.
Now, that leaves one large question. How is it that we are to operate outside the bounds of elder, uh, eldership in, uh, within the body of, of Christ? And let me give you one more passage. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. The controlling principle here would be we are to treat each other as family members. 1 Timothy 5, and verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. <clears throat> Paul here writing to Timothy, a pastor of a local church, he gives him instructions for how he's to treat those in his, his church. The controlling analogy here is as you would in a family. Notice, nobody is the husband of the church except Jesus Christ. Instead, we are to Treat one another as siblings, or if they're older than you, respect as parents. This shows there's no difference in value. That sisters in Christ and brothers in Christ are just as saved as one another, will end up in the same heaven, and are just as valuable to the body of Christ as each other. If you don't know how it is you were to think about someone in your church, Maybe you're single and you don't have a husband or a wife. Or maybe you just have someone sitting next to you that you don't know your relationship to them. Let this be the controlling idea. They are your family, a brother or a sister, someone to be valued, not because of what they do, but because of who made them and whose image they reflect. Now, It's obvious that there are many distortions of this aspect of the image of God in the day and age we live. Between the confusion of things like gender dysphoria, those who feel as if they are a different gender than that which they actually are, to the questions of how male and female are to fit together within a local church can be a very confusing topic for us to wade through. So allow me to end this sermon on a note of encouragement. For all that we may get wrong, and for all that the image of God expressed in our, as male and female may be seemingly tarnished by the time we live. Ephesians, uh, Colossians 3, 9 through 10 tells us that the image of God will be fully restored. Paul talking about the new life that we have in Christ. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What hope is there for us? What hope is there for a world that is confused on male and female? What hope is there for people made in the image of God? And yet seeing the brokenness of this world and themselves, seeing that image tarnished. Well, the hope is that God, day by day, would make us more like Jesus. And that that image would be restored because of all that he's done. Let's pray.